So I'm with Simon right now. Simon was the editor of a legendary West Bromwich Albion fanzine called Grorty Dick and we're sitting in a lovely real ale bar called the Wagon and Horses in Hale Zoe, not far from where Simon lives. And what's interesting about Simon is that he truly was one of the fanzine pioneers, but he's also still involved in writing and producing a fanzine today, as we shall hear. Firstly, Simon, then, as a West Bromwich Albion fan, albeit with a heritage in Hereford, yes, yes. which will come to be relevant later on, okay. you were involved in a magazine initially that wasn't really a football fanzine, I suppose. No, it wasn't. Called, called Fingerpost. That's right, my word, that goes back a while now. I think it launched in 1983. It was essentially a supporters club publication to boost the image uh, of the Hell's Own branch, the Albion Supporters Club. I'd seen a similar example, one on the Leeds United branches. I thought, I like this, I like this. And I'd always wanted to be a writer of some description, but truthfully probably never had the talent. And that was the, the nearest I was ever going to get to it. Um, yes, it started in 83, very, very, very much, you know, about the supporters club members, you know, who's well, who's got, who's matched, hatched and occasionally dispatched, all that sort of stuff. But I started getting influenced by other publications um, who were a little more outspoken, shall we say, than um, the, the my efforts. Uh, I thought we were talking about the, the pioneers, really, of, of the fanzine movement. Um, I, I, I mentioned particularly City Gen from Bradford City, which was going really sharply. Uh, and I mentioned a couple of um, national publications, including Off the Ball, which, I mean, I, I made it very clear that I thought, wow, this is something else. This is absolutely great. This is, this is where I want to be. And so the content of what was a sports club publication... Um, started to change. Now, we were very fortunate at the time. The club had a very sympathetic secretary who allowed to sell inside the ground. So it was selling 1,500 copies You know, at the time. Uh, it wasn't desperately good. But at the time, uh, and I'm sure people around in the 80s will understand, there was really absolutely nothing out there that really expressed views of supporters. You know, we, we were sort of patted on the head here's, a, here's an awful overpriced programme with absolutely no content in it but buy it anyway that sort of thing you know when we were told earnestly that Albin's midfielder Carlton Palmer is no relation to golfer Arnold Palmer and that's supposed to be important news oh for heaven's sake you know that sort of tosh um, from there though my contents got so uh, difficult for certain club officials to swallow a sports club loved the money. They, lo they loved the money that was pouring in. They loved the, the profile being raised. What they didn't love was having to explain certain articles to uh, the club board. Sadly, our uh, saviour, Gordon Bennett, had moved on. He was rather disillusioned by then. So it's really only a matter of time. Uh, and I think the board is looking for an excuse. And they got one in the, sake, uh, in the form of a, a notorious article um, written by uh, a certain Mr Goldberg. <laughs> and when you look back on it now, actually, it's, it's so innocuous, but it was just any old excuse. I think there was a line in there which su suggested that the Albion board had acted in certain ways like the Chinese government, you know, that sort of Tiananmen Square type era. 
and that was all it took. Um, we were ejected from the ground, um, and that actually wasn't that bad in itself, because we got first dibs on selling before before people saw programmes. But then the supporters club was still very very anxious, and we had a falling out of the ways. Up to this day, I'm not sure whether I was sacked or whether I was whether I resigned. I'm not sure who got him first, um, but. I left that publication feeling very, very annoyed and frustrated. Um, we didn't go quietly. Um, my uh, fiance at the time, plus all the other editors, we all got together and said, we're not going away. We're going to do our own thing. So we contacted all the contributors and everybody jumped, jumped into bed with us. So we thought, we've got a fighting chance here. So we started this new independent publication called Grotty Dick. And that was a bit of a shock because, like, it was our money, <laughs> you know. And if it went wrong, it was going to get seriously expensive. Um, it's difficult because there was no social media then. There's no easy way to get the message out. So I think we more or less spoke to a couple of sympathetic newspaper reporters and just launched in, goodness me, when was it? 1989, I think it was, November 89, uh, issue one of Grotty Dick. We, we, we played it safe, we needed a thousand copies, we needed 32 pages, although we probably could have filled more, just to try and make sure that the print bill wasn't excessive, but we sold a lot. There was a lot of, what is that? What the heck's this? Or, or where's finger post? You know, all those sort of queries, but it was reassuring that we sold out. I've written today, as it happens, about when I started off the ball the existence of the National Federation of Football Supporters Club, who I no doubt had leaders who were well-meaning, but they were people who wore ties mm. and suits to matches. They were people, in the case of the leader at the time, their chairman, Tony Kershaw, who was a conservative councillor. And... I just always felt that those people, who were the only people at the time who were given the ear of government, didn't really understand the passion of fan culture as I enjoyed it. And I was never party to or a, any kind of advocate of hooliganism, but I did like the boisterousness of a football crowd. I loved the energy and the, the noise of a crowd. And I always felt that these people were too reserved, too middle class for us. And from what you're saying, Albion's supporters club, who didn't really like some of the more outspoken content in finger post, were cut from similar cloth. Oh, oh absolutely. I mean, I, I understand what you're saying about National Fed. I mean, I used to be a representative of, for the Albion and go to meetings and discussing things like beauty pageants, which wasn't really <laughs> what I travelled 100 miles to discuss, but... They, there you go. Yeah, I mean, yes, conservative with a small C and maybe a big C in many cases. They didn't want to get involved in anything. They didn't want to get involved in the Hillsborough appeal. They want to get involved in the petition against the ID card. Stuff that really mattered to me and mattered to people that I knew. So it was really, really difficult. Um, they staggered on with their own finger posts for a while and two editors came and two editors went because... <laughs> <laughs> they had the same problems. But yeah, it, it was, it's like a microcosm everywhere, wasn't it? There was no outlet for football supporters to actually say, hang on, what about us? You know, in those days, football supporters weren't interviewed by the media. Or it just sort of just started coming in. But before that, you know, no, 
football supporters. Well, they're not very bright, are they? <laughs> you know, and not talk to them. What, what opinions have they got? Uh, and as it happens, we've got a lot of opinions and there's an awful lot of uh, intelligence and skills amongst us if, you, if people bother to tap into it. And in true fanzine style, you adopted a name for your newly independent publication that would cause people to say, huh? what? So for people who don't know, Grorty Dick is not some kind of publication that is suitable for the top shelf. Yeah, I mean, but it, isn't it great for marketing purposes, though? <laughs> you, you, know, you can imagine the sort of, well, I'm happy to describe the sort of chants and cries on the street, you know, that, uh, you know, get your dig here, get your big dick here. We did an enlarged edition there, start of the season, so it's get your big dick here, and that did not get people noticing. <laughs> But yeah, it, it is, um, and I've had to explain this thousands and thousands of times, quite disappointing really, it is a traditional black country casserole dish going back about two centuries, which is groats, sort of rolled oats, uh, shin beef, onion, basically just cheap, a cheap casserole belly filler for people who haven't got too much money to rub together. Um, and of course, we also had a Latin motto, uh, Semper Tifalant, which literally means they always fail you. <laughs> they which always let you down. They always let you down. They always <laughs> fail you. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and that was um, that was actually fairly good in that particular period. But it did give us a sort of veneer of sophistication. We got this Latin motto. We're different, you know. We're not just savages in the street. Um, and there, from not from 1989 onwards, we we grew and we grew because. Uh, the fanzine movement, if I can use that phrase, was growing everywhere and every club had one, or two, or three, or four. And you chronicled some of the darkest days in West Bromwich Albion's history. This was a club which traditionally was a member of the top division of English football, but which for 16 years, between 1986 and 2002, was outside the top division. So you had plenty to bellyache about as Albion supporters and in some ways in terms of sales I'm guessing that helped. Yes it did um, I mean I, I had the sort of motto at the time in in terms of cr- times of crisis people turned to their fanzine which they all seemed to at the Albion it seemed to be the only place where people could really express their true feelings the only alternative was the Saturday Night Pink which you may get a couple of letters in and it was heavily sanitised or the local radio station again that was heavily sanitised and and cut off and the presenter often had agendas so there wasn't too many outlets and we filled the need I mean we were up to two and a half thousand copies at one time which probably wasn't that far behind the club program which had improved which was still remarkably bland and tall You did have one or two run-ins with players, didn't you? Oh, goodness me. You like these stories, don't you? Players didn't always like what you wrote about them. No, uh, and in... Come on, spill the beans. Oh, what again? (laughs) This this is the gory bit everybody seems to like. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was not a uh, professional writer, and it was sort of learning on the job, so to speak. So in my earlier days, I was blunt, perhaps incautious. Uh, I mean, there was one... Central defender who didn't like being called a floodlight reflector because he hadn't got any hair. This is Paul Dyson. Paul, Paul Dyson, <laughs> yes, who made a point of telling me when he and I were carrying a bench onto a onto a pitch, pre-season friendly. Um, 
Then there was, uh, I can't even remember what had upset them particularly, but there was two other, shall we say, more excitable players who, who uh, made a point of cornering me at certain locations and giving me the benefit of all their industrial language at one go because something they objected to. Although, ironically, both of them left the club fairly quickly afterwards, so maybe my point was proven. Was one of them Robert Hopkins? He was, yes. Yeah, yes. So Robert Hopkins... Uh, a fairly legendary player, a Birmingham City fan who'd briefly played for Aston Villa at the start of his career, was then part of a quite a notorious group of players under Ron Saunders at Birmingham, including Noel Blake and Tony Coton, if memory serves yes. me correctly. They were guys who enjoyed going out and having a good time socially, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, and then very discreetly put. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> Hopkins came to Albion and his style was uncompromising to say the least mm. but also off the field as well then he was he what did he do did he threaten you ah uh, goodness me I, I i just remember a torrent of words coming my way which include if he took the four letter words out there wouldn't be much left that, that's <laughs> best i recap because we are going back a long way here and i I mean, I also upset Tony the Belly Kelly for a uh, predictable comment about his weight, but he was seriously overweight. But clearly, it was an issue he wasn't willing to address. <laughs> so he, he took issue with you as well? Yes, yes. I mean, I remember the uh, I was outside the ground and the club minibus drew up and the door slammed open and Tony the Belly Kelly emerged with a rather worried-looking Andy Gray behind <laughs> Uh, Tony told me exactly what he thought of me and then Andy Gray tugged him back in and the door shut and off they went. I thought, oh, thank you very much for that. It's quite a revelation of a kind of different time in football, isn't it? Because I don't know whether it's because Albion have had relative success in the years since then or whether footballers have become better protected and built better walls around themselves, although, of course, they are still now assailed on social media but the idea that you as a, a willing amateur who's making a fan-driven magazine could get under their skin to the point where they thought it was worth yeah threatening well, I, I, I guess they saw that as being some kind of threat to their career but because of i don't know how many copies we sold but you know i think other players just laughed it off uh i mean i know remember doing some having some spoof cartoons of carlton palmer because he was in his very young days, he was very, very tall. and His nickname was Too Tall, and legendary. he got his legs twisted over and fell over a lot. So we, we did some cartoons on that. And although I don't know what Palmer thought of it, but the rest of the players loved it, and apparently he went up in the dressing room wall. So, yeah, it swings around a bit. I, I think I, I, I learned from that, and hopefully the players did. That, you know, there are other ways of doing things. Yeah, although the bluntness yeah. that you describe, the straightforwardness, is something that you don't see in local newspapers. It's some because the journalists have a professional relationship with the players and they have to see them again the next day at training to get more quotes from them. Local radio, likewise, the guys who report on that want to keep good relations because they've got to go back. You were just given a fan view from the terraces, from the stands. So in a sense, you had a bit more license to be critical of players. Oh. I did, I did, uh, and I did a lot. <laughs> but um, I think they get to the point where you think, you know, it, sometimes it's better to be positive than negative, and being negative all the time is probably not good for anybody's mental health. Um, so I, lear I learned to be more critical, but in a more subtle way over the years. Um, 
and the football club's attitude softened markedly towards me, which which helped. Um, when we had uh, a new chairman, Paul Thompson, in charge, now he took a very, very different view. He, uh, he basically said, access all areas to us. He basically invited us in to talk, to interview anybody who wanted to, sit in on press conferences, pretty much whatever we wanted to do, uh, but with, that, with the unspoken word that, you know, you've got to be responsible when you've got that kind of access. So that changed things. It was... A quite an eye-opener. I mean, the very first interview we did a week later with one player, I'm not going to name, uh, admitted, oh, yes, we spent the whole morning practising diving on the training field. I thought, oh, my <laughs> word. <laughs> and he was new and he's a nice guy, so we weren't going to, you know, drop drop everything on him, so we, we ignored that bit. So, um, so with that sort of access came responsibility. I thought we could... Uh, I thought that, you know, things did change... It was steering a difficult balancing line between still being a critical friend, but at the same time realizing what you know that what actually sort of happening behind the scenes. It was a difficult one. I think we did it fairly well, um, but then, then of course Paul Thompson went, and we were we sort of back to square one again, <laughs> out on out on the outside trying to make sense of it all. Yeah, Jeremy yeah. Peace then mm. came in at West Brom. Mm. And you mentioned the incident which led to the creation of Fingerpost. Though, as you say, this was an article I wrote for Fingerpost in which I compared, it was a ridiculous comparison, the Albion board at the time with the Chinese government in relationship to Tiananmen Square. And my point wasn't that the Albion board were out to massacre any supporters, but just that they were incredibly sensitive to criticism and overreacted to criticism. It may have been an inappropriate metaphor on my part. However, they reacted to the complaint that they were oversensitive to criticism by being oversensitive to criticism. <laughs> <laughs> they banned, they banned fingerpost. As the years went on, how did the different hierarchies over a time period react to the criticism that you were making? And it, I think it's fair to say because of the, the state the club was in, it, it was for most of that time critical. Yeah, I mean, we, we built a, quite a, a relationship with some of the directors and we saw things from their perspective as well, but even so, um, they as, as a group, they still remain very sensitive to criticism and I don't think that's changed today and not just at Albion, but any other club. It's, uh, it's a tricky one, isn't it, to actually get a point over them without throwing dollies out of the pram. What do you think your value was to... Albion supporters over that period? It's always a difficult one, isn't it? I, I often suspected that ideas we had, Albion would adopt six months later and claim them as their own. Uh, and I think it was an important safety valve. And I think it was also a genuine source of information because the football club at that particular time got no media people. They, they were... They just battened down the hatches, unfortunately, all the time. So they weren't able to um, clarify why certain things are done and not done. So in some cases, we're able to do that for them. We shouldn't have to do it for them. But uh, that's just how it was at the time. It was a weird time in the 1980s, looking back. What do you remember of the campaign against identity cards? Oh, goodness me. Now, that was... Uh, we were the... Albion was the first club to do uh, 
a petition on the day. Um, Sporters Club, sadly, said it's not for them. I thought, oh, charming, okay. So it was a combination of the XM people at the local branch of the FSA and Albion Sporters I could rope in coming together to, uh, you know, get people to sign of our petition all the way around the ground. It went extraordinarily well. I think we got 5,000 at the time. And I'm pretty clear that so many people said, that's brilliant, I'm taking these back to my mates at factories, offices, schools, whatever. And I believe within within a week, that number of signatures doubled to 10,000. Uh, we got on Radio 2, which is obviously now Radio 5. It was like just after, just before the 5 o'clock results. Yeah, sports report. Yeah, sports report. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was this short piece of me with a very squeaky voice, which <laughs> I didn't recognise myself, so I don't think anybody else did either. But it was really good to get that publicity up and rolling. Uh, and as a result, I think you might argue that Alvin supporters perhaps were amongst the more militant because... There were groups of Albion supporters who, when Albion weren't playing, would do get um, go to other grounds and get people to sign the petition. Coventry, I remember, Old Trafford, and even Wembley. Luton, Nottingham, Forest oh. League Cup final, I think it was. It was, yes. Um, Luton was a hard sell. There yeah. really, really was. Yeah, well, Luton had yeah. their own membership scheme, didn't they? Yeah, and they didn't get it, didn't want to get it. Um, you know... The, the, pointing out to them that they could go to any away game whereas we couldn't go to their ground didn't seem to make any difference to them. They, they couldn't see beyond the, the end of their nose. And There were some, shall we say, heated discussions between Luton supporters and people getting them to try and sign the petition. In the end, I think we pretty much everybody gave up on Luton. <laughs> Did the other club. But I was also part of that yeah. campaign and persuaded Gordon Bennett at Albion to put the petition in the club programme, which was such a big thing for that campaign because it kind of gave it a legitimacy within football and allowed us to then say to other clubs, well, if Albion can do it, why can't you? And that was in your brief period of glasnost with the club's authorities. <laughs> but it was pretty immense. And one of the things I remember going and gathering signatures outside grounds was that it was part of that process of breaking breaking down the historical antagonism that we as supporters were expected to have towards other fans. I remember gathering signatures at Warsaw when Leeds United came to town and supporters in the West Midlands with all sorts of backgrounds. Let these two guys go out the door. Supporters in the West Midlands from different clubs who, for whatever reason, were not playing that day, came together to then lobby the feared Leeds United supporters and got a, a terrific response. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a, at that time, I had a very, very good relationship with Leeds United. So I would have happily had done that had that been impossible. Um, I brokered um, a sort of partnership, if you like, between Albion supporters and Leeds supporters in the 1980s as much as you possibly could, given the historic enmity, shall we say. Going back to the uh, 1982, when in a fairly awful display, Albion uh, effectively relegated Leeds out of the first division, and many Leeds supporters of mature years uh, retaliated by trying to pull down the Smithwick End fence and invading the pitch. 
which for anybody who was there did take a bit of getting over. Yeah, well, I, I was there. But also, yeah. uh, that enmity extended back into the 70s to the time when Albion prevented Leeds winning the league title with a blatantly offside goal. Not our fault, the fault of the referee Ray Tinkler, who didn't call offside. But anyway, there yeah. was this antagonism. Yeah. But in terms of that breaking down these divisions between supporters, some of which, of course, were emphasised by mainstream media who in my memory anyway, tended to characterise football supporters all as shaven, headed brutes and didn't really distinguish between us and them. But the... Uh, I've lost my thread now. What was I saying? What was I saying? Um, uh, remind me, Simon, where was so I? Media lumping all supporters together. Yeah, 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 not, yeah. Not yeah. Too bright. Uh, oh, yeah, no, brokering, yeah. brokering. Yeah. Yeah. Um, during that period, encouraged to do so by you know mainstream media who tended to do stereotype us all as kind of shaven-headed thugs when we manifestly weren't. You and through your good offices with the supporters club, which you still had some good links with, ensured that Albion supporters started playing regular games against fans of other clubs, and this became a kind of a routine thing over many years with rival supporters getting mm. together having a, a, a serious match before the main match yeah. Yeah. but then also having a very good social get together before yeah I, you know there's there's so many good memories really uh, we uh, Albin went to Barnsley a few times and they absolutely loved us that they invited us I think th two years in a row to their player of the year night <laughs> which <laughs> which is uh, in their social club and he didn't have to it was great uh when when I took a well, coach load of supporters up to Ellen Road, we played a match. Then we got a tour of Ellen Road. Then they fed us, and uh, there were, and little bonds started to build. And we we played Stoke every year, home and away. And it's almost like every player knew every other player in the opposition team, you know. And, uh, I mean that both sides really, really wanted to win. Just like on the pitch, it was quite brutal at times. But you know, everybody had a beer afterwards and was quite civil about it. And was this at supporters club level or was this fanzine to fanzine uh, level? It was, a bit, it was a bit of both. You may have recall there was some fanzine six-a-side tournaments run at the time. There was um, the Merthyr fanzine did an excellent one, the Frog of Friendship, when people travelled down from far as Scotland to put a team in. Uh, and the Albion team won it one year and the trophy was presented by the uh, Welsh FA secretary and we asked him very nicely is this a passport into Europe <laughs> sadly it wasn't but I think yeah. it's important for people to realise that getting football supporters rival supporters to meet before matches and have a competitive game of football amongst themselves but then to socialise before kickoff, these days for most games that can now be taken for granted, at least at certain pubs mm. and involving mm. most fan groups. There are still exceptions, but mostly now that has become happily a routine feature of going to football. In the mid-80s, that was a revolutionary it was, act. It was, yeah. I mean, uh, the Albin team, I think, was one of the first. Uh, Nottingham Forest Supporters Club has sent oh. us an invite, please play a football match. Oh, um, we haven't got a team. <laughs> we better put the team together, hey. I think it was about 82, 83, so we put a team together and it just built from there. Um, and it ran, for th this particular team ran for, I don't know, 15, 20 years. Met an awful lot of people. 
um, went to went to Wales for tournaments, Scotland for tournaments, um, went to lots and lots of league games. Uh, it was stupid kickoff times because if you're kicking off at half past ten in the morning and the and the at the ground which is I don't know 150 miles away <laughs> it's a long old day but you know there was people willing to do it and the places where we clubs where we went to you know uh, London Barnsley oh god whole city you know they made us very very welcome and that's the sort of culture that was going on but nobody really took any attention yeah, so in some senses that predated fanzine culture but was very much of yeah, fanzine yeah. and fostered by fanzine. Yeah, I mean, there were some genuine fanzine teams. Uh, I uh, I set up a match between uh, what was a f- supposedly a Hereford, uh, the Hereford Talking Bull fanzine team against um, the West Brom Grotty Dick team. OK, they, w- they weren't all directly connected, but the principle was there and we played on the Hereford ground uh, and it was an absolutely memorable game. Um, not least, I suppose I, sh- I shouldn't really share this, but one of the um, one of the visiting players brought his girlfriend, who uh, was very willing to join everybody in the showers afterwards. <laughs> so you don't forget games where, <laughs> where that particular element is involved, shall we say? <laughs> and this was an era, as well as of fans coming together. Sadly, an era of hooliganism and violence at matches and you and I were involved in you and you and I were involved in a charity fundraising match because an Everton fan whose name if name if memory Robert Robert McMurray yeah Yeah. memory serves me well Robert McMurray Robert McMurray was an Everton fan who came to a cup game at the Hawthorns in 1989 and as Albion supporters, we like to generally pride ourselves on the fact that our supporters are usually pretty well behaved, yeah. but there are idiots everywhere. And one group of fans attacked Robert McMurray, the result of which he lost an eye. He blinded in one eye, yes. This was 1988, I think. Yeah. Uh, was it 88 or 89? Well, it might have been 89, okay. It's a while ago now. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think there was a, a general sense of disgust, and more than that, what can we actually do to try and make some kind of amends? Um, so there was a lot of, lot of setup involved, wasn't there? Uh, if you remember rightly, there was a, I think a forty-page program that um, was had genuine content in it, although it did have a lot of adverts um, that was sold to to friends and supporters everywhere and there was two matches played on the Hawthorns uh, I think basically two different supporters matches best I recall uh, and Albin made the ground available the Red Cross did it for, for nothing um, and Ro- Robert was uh, a little bit overwhelmed to be truthful we in the end we raised £3,000 which at the time that's, that was sufficient to put down on a uh, as a deposit for a mortgage which is actually what he did with it because in it, he wanted to move into a house with his girlfriend couldn't afford it and that allowed him to do it so something positive came out of that um, and it was uh, a very boisterous social after the two games I seem to remember in the, I think the Red Cow in Smethwick still uh, a fine establishment yes, going tonight yes. but worth just worth reflecting on that moment because again I think that was something that distinguished us from perhaps a previous generation of supporters who may well have tutted about football hooliganism but I think this gives the lie to the idea that people who are involved in fanzines 
we're not really concerned about hooliganism. We were. There were many other things that were wrong with football at that time, not least the people who ran it. But hooliganism was an issue, and we were trying to do something constructive to well, challenge it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also trying to ch challenge the media stereotypes that, uh, you know, unfortunately at that time... Uh, people reading certain newspapers would believe that there's violence at every game every weekend and that was never ever the case there was possibly violence at one in 50 games you know on a Saturday and of course everybody's swooped in on that one I remember an infamous quote by Jeremy P said oh yes I'm an Arbin supporter but I wouldn't go for 10 years because of the hooliganism I thought hmm really if you were a supporter Jeremy you'd be there it was really never ever that bad yeah you'd, you'd know that it wasn't yeah. that bad wouldn't yeah. you despite yeah. occasional pretty serious outbursts and towards the end of your time at Grotty Dick Albion got much more successful they were starting to develop again as a top division club but that brought you into conflict with some supporters yeah I mean we were under pressure from all sides and, and truthfully we're probably getting a bit long in the tooth we've been doing for 13 14 years and we'd seen everything and written about everything and we're just repeating ourselves now uh, Premier League was difficult because of all the restrictions around image rights uh, photographs become a real real problem that weren't before and uh, I mean, this sounds patronising, but I think Albin gained a lot more new supporters who didn't get fanzines, didn't see the need for them. Uh, I mean, the internet was growing, so that they that was their channel for uh, venting, if you like. Uh, and these new supporters, they didn't think criticism was was in order, even though it's merited. And many of them. I think it's a new generation thing, you know, uh, television has made it worse that some people decide that they know better than anybody else. They haven't done any research, they haven't spoken to anybody in the know, they haven't tapped up journos, they haven't tapped up directors, they just know. <laughs> and when you have a few of those, it's, uh, throwing abuse, or literally throwing things, including punches, then you think, what am I doing all this for, you know? Because we were basically unpaid volunteers and... Did, did one of your sellers then, or you, who got attacked? Uh, bizarrely, the, the wife of one contributor was, was hit. And I know one of, one of our other contributors got hit. Uh, others were threatened. Because of what? They did, um, because uh, of what they perceive as in the fanzine. They didn't buy it. They didn't know what was in it, but they'd been told it was terrible and disgusting and disgraceful, but... And what, what did they think had been written? Uh, the issues really revolved around the Alvin manager, Gary Megson. Uh, some people uh, thought that he could n never, ever do anything wrong. Everything he did was pure genius. And that's not the case for anybody, is it? They're, everybody's human. And we can all learn. We can all take positive criticism, or should do. Uh, and for me, Gary Minkson was a bit of a mixed character. He, he was paranoid in, in some areas. He really, really was. And if he took a dislike to a person, there was no way back, regardless of how much that, he, that person had cost the club to bring them in. And that didn't seem terribly sensible to me. But um, unfortunately, others decided that I was a, an idiot, a plonker, and all the other words that... <laughs> And you get tired after that. 
after so many weeks of it, you know. So you knocked it on the head? Uh, yeah, I mean, I th we did. And we had 15 years. That was really quite enough. Our sales had dropped pretty much to where we started back in issue one. Uh, and the r really was difficult now because Albin were a big name. Every new source was following at every story. And there really was not too much more to write about. So we thought I had enough of that. <laughs> so yeah. we, we the world had changed away. around yeah, you. The, world changed. Yeah, the, yeah. the internet was coming on stream. Yes, very much but so. But also the football club had improved. Yeah. So the, the very particular niche that you filled yeah. so usefully for many years mm. kind of That's not right. quite disappeared, but kind of reduced significantly. Yeah, I mean, Albin had a professional media team who were churning out stuff all the time which uh, unfortunately most people took as 100% gospel, didn't want to look between the lines, thought, I'm going to set that, it must be right. Well, not, no, no, guys, it's not quite that clear cut. Honestly, we, I could tell you when, but of course nobody wanted to listen to any of that anymore. Uh, and, you know, the, there was chat rooms and all sorts, so people could go and vent off in there and it didn't cost them anything. Why on earth would they, they spend all of ATP on a fanzine? <laughs> Did you ever make a living out of God, no, no. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, I was, uh, we were the opposite. Uh, I was what I call strict first generation. It was purely uh, for, uh, you know, for reasons of art, I suppose, or wanting to make a difference. I always resented the, what I call the Johnny-come-lately. said, oh, we're going to set up a fanzine. We're going to make hundreds of pounds every issue. I thought, no. Please don't do that. But um, there were and and are some full-time fanzines that do make a living from it, which, okay, I suppose good luck to them, but it's not what fanzines should be about, in my humble opinion. You would have thought, after 15 years' long service with Fingerpost and then Grotty Dick, and given the abuse that you suffered towards the end, that you might have learnt some wisdom and knocked it on the head. However... Simon, as well as continuing to support West Bromwich Albion, you also continue to follow your original hometown club, Hereford United, and produce their fanzine. Yes, this is true. <laughs> <laughs> Talking Bull. Yeah, yeah. Well, Talking Bull it, it has been around a long time. It started in 1988, and I always was a contributor, as far as I could be, when I was sort of an active supporter of a different club, but... I always thought it was an important tool for to have some an independent voice at that football club because they'd also got paranoid directors. <laughs> um, they got through three editors, and when editor number three packed his, please take it over, please take it over. No, I can't. I'm not. I'm only a part-time supporter. It's not right. So it dropped away for ten years, but. Um, when Hereford FC were founded, there was a Phoenix club to replace the Hereford United who folded in horrible circumstances. Um, I was asked if I would become a senior contributor to a revived Talking Ball fanzine, um, working with uh, the BBC reporter Keith Hall, who's actually a very, very good writer. Uh, he wanted to revive it and said, would, would I come on board? So can I say you know <laughs> yeah, of course of course um just the time when everybody is volunteering for everything because they desperately wanted this group to succeed so so it was revived it's it's made in sort of a glossy publication which actually looked better than the program 
three years down the line, I was asked if I would take it over, be the front of house. Oh, go on then. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm now officially the editor of what is, I think, probably the only print fanzine left in the West Midlands. Um, I'm considering, you know, this is for a National League North club. I think we really do punch our weight. It's a little bit unfortunate that I get on very well with editors of non-league fanzines, but most league fanzines, they're so patronising. Absolutely shocking. There's no need for it. There really isn't. Yeah, nice little fanzine. Now go away. <laughs> right, we... I can blow you lot away. You Johnny come lately, because I've been doing it for decades, and I, I think I'm rather better at it than you are. But yeah, more than three yeah. decades now. What would you say, Simon, are the achievements of the fancy movement? Oh, you're putting me on the spot here, isn't it? Um, I, I think to create, uh, to change how football is written about, or most... Well, all some of the first generation of fanzine writers went into mainstream media and that influence made, made a difference. You know, I think supporters are, are always consulted now. There's always a supporter spokesman, isn't there, for just about any kind of issue. Uh, and, and those guys who left the first generation, I'm trying to remember the, the guy who did the wonderful Boston United fanzine, who's now a comedian and an author, Richard Smith. I think it is, yes, yes. No. From behind your fences. Right, yes, he was the first generation. Uh, and then there's Mike Teicher, who went on to do all sorts of things. Um, and I think maybe still connected to When Saturday Comes in some way or other. I think it just changed the whole view of supporters that, you know, we're not slavering <laughs> bald-headed hooligans, you know. We are perfectly normal people and perfectly capable of coming to our own decisions without being told what to think and what to say. 